Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our sixth series, we've collaborated with Yorkshire Sculpture Park for wide-ranging conversations with six of Britain's most exciting sculptors. Anyway, how are you guys? You found me okay? We did. a good start. Yes. Um, It was a cold morning in the early part of the year when I met Saad Qureshi at his studio in Oxford. Qureshi grew up some way north of here, in Bradford, part of a Pakistani family whose skills in tailoring and needlework had brought them to the UK. We talked about their lasting influence on his work, the art teacher who encouraged him, and his major exhibition at Yorkshire Sculpture Park. So this is my thinking stroke small making space. I do a lot, most of my thinking and experimental work happens here. I mean, this space is really important. I, I literally live here. I'm the only one, in fact, who occupies the building all the time. Like, for example, over the festive period, I was just like standing in the car park and somebody came and had to poke me to say are you real like i just wanted to make sure that you're not some ghost haunting this building because i am always seen here so so this room is interesting because there's a skylight but it's covered it's all painted white it is strip lights we've got bits of your work sort of swathed in wrapping so we did have a window here there was a window here. Uh, my theory now is the fact that windows are nothing but a distraction. So I need to get away from that because there's just so much happening internally. Like in my head, I am bursting with ideas like all the time. And there's just this excitement that sort of takes over and consumes me. And if there's a window, it's just a distraction. You know, if I'm looking outside or somebody's just passing by and they wave at me or something like that, it just goes. So I've I've literally blocked my windows out. It's nice. It to, feels so wormish, doesn't it? It is. I mean, this is literally my headspace. You know, I, I, I've at the moment because these are the works are ready now to leave the studio. In fact, they're leaving tomorrow. So you came at the right time. But had you come, say, I don't know, three, four weeks before, it was very chaotic in here. There were like strips of paper everywhere, and I had like myself and two other weavers. Uh, we were just weaving away. So when you uh, see you're weaving, so we're looking at these uh, works here, but um, you're quite well known for this. You weave strips of paper, right? I do. Um, well, this is actually a very uh, uh, newish uh, project which started during lockdown, and I had to then set up a small studio space at home. And it was a project that I've again wanting to do for a long time to address and really work with my family history of tailoring and textiles and weaving and and all that so we have a whole library of big important textiles that have been made woven by my grandmother great-grandmother my grandfather was a tailor so there's a lot of textiles at home so during lockdown I photographed a lot of them and printed those out and I then start cutting them into very thin strips to then Reweave, so it's kind of taking apart and then constructing again, kind of using same language but telling a new story. So I did a whole whole bunch of those, um, but they were only very small uh, initially. But as I grew confident and was able to then come back into my studio space, they kind of grew and got really big. So yes. how big is this largest one? Uh, the largest one is uh, two point three meters tall by one point six wide. 
Um, but I mean, what's really exciting about these is the fact that e- each one is like multiple different designs that are woven together, but you can still make out elements of the design that were there before, but they're no longer complete. So it, it's kind of, fill, you know, you kind of fill these gaps. Um, there's, there's something about them that really works for me. I mean, on the initial glance, they seem quite chaotic, but then the more you look at them, the more you kind of make out the image. So there's a sense of discovery the weaving kind of bringing all these stories together that kind of a lot of my work has always been about Mm -hmm. telling human stories yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) so these i just feel we ought to describe them a bit more so they've got they look like traditional rugs really don't they or wall hangings some of them are um so they are either wall hangings or they are rugs for like floor rugs or they are actually um items of clothing um so a lot of my mother's um, saris or dubatta, which is like a big scarf there's many South Asian women wear. There, there's a piece that I did for my show, the first show in New York. It's called The Bridal Jewel. This is my mother's wedding scarf. That's beautiful. So it's this, this gorgeous the, sort of orangey red She got red married colour. in this and I, I photographed it and then again I cut it into strips and then rewove it. So it's it kind of still there that was made by her mother and my my mother but then I kind of took it again and then rewove it so it's kind of my having a dialogue with what happened a whole generation before me so some of these the ones we're looking at on the table they tell sometimes stories are inherited stories I guess they do yeah. so so when we talk about sort of more um, tapestry weaving wall hangings a lot of them uh, actually depict stories and narratives and they could be either sort of more Quranic stories that are then woven and illustrated through the wall hanging in, in the wall hangings or they're just sort of more moral stories that are taught to young children for good characteristics so the stories the narratives can vary but most often than not they do have these characters and it it, it kind of looks as though there is a narrative that you kind of need to need to know mm-hmm. more recently when people saw the, the, these kind of paper tapestries that i've been making the thing that i've taken a really radical change of direction in my work but actually conceptually i haven't because what i'm doing now is like physically weaving but i've always woven stories um this piece here for example uh, what i did for this project was that i was collecting stories fragments of significant landscapes from other people and as soon as I've, I had a, a number of different elements the idea was to kind of somehow piece that scene together there was reimagining somebody else's memory weaving it with somebody else's memory and then manifesting it into a sculptural piece so let's describe it so it's sort of it's all black it's all black it looks very dystopian deserted industrial landscape I call them mindscapes because they're not really real. So they're real because it, it 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 was kind of it comes from a memory of a real place, but then it's reimagined. So it kind of hovers in that sort of middle space uh, between the real and the imagined. So, so the reason why it looks very deserted and very dystopian is because that's how I kind of initially used to imagine mindscapes to be like. They're kind of these fragments of 
landscape in your brain in your in your mind that are not fully formed they they kind of have these very fuzzy edges uh, that's how memory works in my in my opinion that you know it's not very sharp and very clear it can be quite sort of dystopian looking but since this work i've i've done my big breakthrough exhibition at the YSP Yorkshire Sculpture Park which was again to do with the idea of collecting stories but that time I was more interested in the contemporary phenomena of paradise which is something that kind of I grew up with you know I was born into a religious household and the idea of paradise really formed the backdrop of my family life um so it was a it was a concept that was always there with me and my my parents you know from that very islamic quranic point of view explaining the idea of paradise to me um so there was this very set understanding of what it is that i'm kind of moving towards or, or working towards i guess but then as as i grew up and really moved away from home and went to university and met all these amazing other people who were also talking about paradise but one that was very radically different from mine that was the fascination that i had with that very word paradise that it was just so ambiguous and and broad uh, for example you know there were people talking about a very utopian vision of all of us coming together and making a paradise here and now and that's a paradise you know who's who's to say it's not um so that was something that i was really interested in so i went out and and started talking to people um communities from relig- like religious background and none and i was asking f- about their ideas of paradise and then through those stories i i was able to reimagine some mental place mindscape that i was then able to manifest into into that shows um how did you choose those communities i was really fascinated when i was reading about that a lot of them were people that i had access to i mean i'm very very fortunate you know i live in oxford oxford has a very diverse community of many different religious uh, backgrounds we also then run some amazing workshops at the ysp um uh, with communities so it was just kind of like a call out workshops and invitations that people could kind of come and donate uh stories it was uh Yeah. Perfectly housed as we were discussing earlier, um perfectly housed in the chapel, I guess. Absolutely. I mean I th- the the experience of my um coming across that sort of space um, uh, chapel on the day. So I I actually was um Sarah Colson first invited me to be part of a group show at the Bossy Gallery uh, in 2017 I think that was. So I went up uh, to install my work in that for that group show. I did it got it done in no time at all and then I had all the spare time to explore the YSP so I stumbled up across the the chapel space I didn't know it was there I didn't know the YSP since I first visited in 2002 and it was just a very fine day it was very sunny and I walked into that space and this the way the sunlight flooded that space and it was just the I guess the only way to really explain it is where religion and art and real world kind of come together to create magic and that's that's that space for me so as soon as i i i was in that space immediately the the the, the whole concept of paradise sprang to my mind it's like oh my god like this is the space that i want to realize that project for and then we made it happen yeah so 
you're from Yorkshire originally though, right? I grew up in Yorkshire. So I was born in Pakistan. I moved to Bradford at the age of eight, uh, which was quite an experience because not having any language or the sense of um, space, like where we just landed, it was almost like a rebirth for me at the age of eight. I mean, I, I always talk about my sort of having two birthplaces. Like there was that sort of birth, physical birth in Pakistan. And then there was a, another birth in, in Bradford because when I arrived in Bradford, there was just too many problems for me. The language barrier being the primary one. The reason why I was really bullied in school, like school was hard. But my school teacher, my art teacher, Mrs. Robinson, saved my life. She was the one that really acknowledged and recognised something very early on. I was not even in my GCSEs at the time and I was really able to open up to her in my sort of broken English. I was able to communicate across and she's like literally her words, you don't need to speak when you can make. And I I mean those words really stayed with me and it's like yeah, you know. I can I can show you. I don't need to kind of tell you. And it was just those things that really stayed with me. That's and still in your work today. That's remarkable. It is. I mean, you know, it's all about connecting stories, uh, making sense of my surrounding and connecting it to the wider world. It's all still there, thanks to Mrs. Robinson. What were you doing at that stage in art, in your art classes? Oh, I think uh, the early stage in art education is all about being able to learn how to draw, paint make any like it was just play and discovery so i mean there were no there was no bigger sort of conceptual underpinning in the work at the time it was just about making and finding a visual language that i could then later develop you know i just wanted to tell you that mm-hmm. my first ever exposure to a real art institution was YSP. So in 2002, I was studying GCSEs and Mrs. Robinson organised a day trip to the YSP, but it was only for the sixth formers um, and she invited me to come along. So I did and that was the first time that I, I kind of really realised um, the real power of art and how, and, and the fact that it was a real serious thing, it really exposed me to the the real and the seriousness of the art world where I really dreamt of being an artist. I mean I, I did initially had um, quite a tough time with my family to go and study art because they wouldn't they didn't think there was and understandably so because obviously coming from a family of immigrants they wanted me to go into academia and secure myself a job at the end of my education and blah, blah. It all kind of made, makes perfect sense. So I did have a tough time convincing my parents to letting me do art. And it was, again, Mrs. Robinson that called my parents and my, my father in and convinced him that, you know, we need to give him a chance to do art and and then let's see what happens. So I think it was that time that my father eventually kind of came around and he said that, OK, let's give this a go and let's see what happens. And And then... Because we didn't know art world at all or, or the possibilities of it or the endless possibilities of what, what, what's, what art is all about. Like painting is the only thing that we all knew that artists do. So that was my initial interest was through painting. But unfortunately, I think that as, as you have no choice whether you're an artist or not, you just are one. It's, it's there. 
Similarly, you have no choice of the medium in which you have to express your ideas. It picks you, like the medium picks you. So <laughs> I don't know whether fortunately or unfortunately, <laughs> like sculpture picked me. And sculpt, like, so, so I was fully trained in painting. I did my undergrad, my postgrad at the Slade was all in painting, but it just didn't work for me. I didn't think I had the skills or the patience to kind of get there. So I then sort of experimented and branched out. And is it a very different visceral feeling when you're to do sculpture than to paint for you? It is. Initially, when I was when I was painting, I think that I had a lot of ideas about the sense of movement and like who I was as a, as a person about my sort of hybrid identity. I didn't think that I was able to kind of articulate those through painting. And then in 2006, I made a painting called Another Road in the Road. It was the first time I decided to paint on the edge of the canvas and I, I displayed it like a shelf. So it was like like the so it wasn't like, like a conventional hang and I was only painting on the edge of the of the canvas. And that was a big breakthrough piece for me, a real turning point in my practice. And it's like, wow, this worked. And why did it work? Because I was really coming out of the wall. Though I, I do I think my, my ideas are best expressed and conveyed, articulated, you know, in a physical medium. That's really interesting because I know you've referred to a little a little bit, but your family heritage, your grandfather was a a, a tailor for the British Army, right? Yes, That's why you came yes. over. So, and your mother's a, a seamstress, right? Yes. Is that where some of the physicality comes from, or? I think so. I mean, making, it's in my DNA. It's always been there. And I mean, that's what I said, like, being an artist was not a choice. And, and that absolutely, I didn't think that my standing in front of a, a canvas or whatever, and making something that was still slightly removed from me was my thing. I had to be physically immersed into the thing that I was making, you know, really getting my, my hands dirty. We've um, spoken about the reverence you had for your grandfather's sewing machine, right? We're looking at one now. I was wondering, actually. I was like, that looks like a pedal. <laughs> We're looking at one now. So every sewing machine that ever existed in the family um, has transformed into an artwork. So we, we are looking at one now. I don't let them throw them away. It's a body. It's a sort of framework of a, of a, of a sewing machine. So you've got the pedal, which is what I could see before. And then it comes up to sort of the tabletop. So this is still the tabletop of the machine itself. So this is where the machine would sit. Um, so here. that's a sort of um, cavity within within the tabletop. It's sort of about, on me, it's about hip height. And then you've got the cavity of where the machine would be. And then on top of that, so it's built these extraordinary, this sort of moonscapey industrial apocalyptic scene, as he described. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and there is the sort of pylons and walls slightly sort of broken down walls and artist hair yes i didn't want to ask what that was <laughs> they <laughs> are my hair it. they are really? my hair yes yes i used oh, is that, to are those paintbrushes or hair no they are hair I, I used to collect my own hair every time i would get a haircut oh. i would just kind of brush them and just take them um away with me i've made a lot of works using hair there's a piece here my mom used to pray a lot oh, yeah. um and uh, worry beads, you know, uh, yeah, prayer, yeah, beads. prayer beads. So I really wanted to make this is my my mother's hair, mother's hair. my mother's hair, 
Um, again, Did you know you were cutting it. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. I, I got the permission. <laughs> I had the permission, and this was her old the yes. prayer beads. Yes, yeah, so you got the prayer beads, and they're threaded onto onto hair. Yeah, and then it's sort of a tail almost at the end. So I, I yeah, I mean, there there are all these little little pieces that really they're not really pieces. They're, these are not even ideas. They're kind of just thoughts, yeah, thoughts. Yeah. The red and white one is uh, another thought. Uh, <laughs> it's it's using red Palestinian scarves. Again, it's a pattern. This particular fabric I've used a lot in the in in the past. I made a huge installation titled "Borrowed from the Shadows." Um, it was using black and white Palestinian scarves. This work was made in collaboration with my mother. So it's all textiles and we couldn't put it through the machine because it was so big. So all of that, 100 metres plus, had to be hand-stitched. So I was holding it and mum was stitching it. So we've come um, quite a long way from your parents not wanting you oh, to go I to mean, art I mean, they're the biggest <laughs> support ever. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think it was the fact that as makers you know there was no sense of security for them um, and I think that that's what they had imagined that I would probably end up with it made sense like I knew where they were coming from and it was for my best and we all nobody knew the art world you know so so in a way we all kind of grew into the art world together as a family and that's what really worked for me yeah yeah. And you came to, that's when you came to Oxford, you came to Brooks. I did, yes. So in 2004, five, I got away from Bradford and came to Oxford to do my undergrad. And it was just coming home. I was able to do art seven days a week and not have to worry about English, math and science and all of that. And it's like, wow, this is just heaven. My idea of paradise. In a very different city. To, it, to it was a very different city. I think that that's where things really started clicking and forming for me. I completely found myself in, in Oxford. Initially, I used to regret not going to London for art college. But I think in retrospect, that was probably the best decision that I had made. Um, Why is staying in, I think um, London is too big and chaotic. I think I probably would have just got lost in the, you know, in the midst of London there's just too much happening and I I would have been just one off like a one pebble in a massive pond whereas Oxford was calmer it allowed me the pace and the time uh, and the space to really discover Has it in other ways affected your work or shaped your work do you think? No it hasn't actually because I think that no matter where I go you know if I'm making work in Oxford, in Pakistan, in New York, wherever. I think that there's just so much happening in my head. I think something really radical needs to happen in, in a new place for it to inform my work. Like, I I would just carry on making. Though, having said that, I did my undergrad at Oxford Brooks, and then I did my postgrad at the Slade School of Art, UCL. Ten years down the road... I am most definitely a Brooks artist. Like something happened in that institution. It's my sensibility as an artist, how they made me, how, I don't know. It, it, it's not something that I, but I, I know I'm a Brooks artist. Is that slightly because you have been 
thirsty for this kind of experience for so long and that was where you first got to drink if you see what I mean that's a beautiful way of of articulating it but no it wasn't I, I don't think so because I think that well I, I I'm like a sponge wherever I go you know I, I I learn every conversation matters and it stays with me you know I have that sensitivity yes I mean that was a very meaningful point uh, in my life but I I think that London I was expecting anticipating that Slade would just kind of really carry that forward and just give me it, it would be in a whole other level but it, it wasn't I mean it, it was just a very unfortunately disappointing experience for me yeah he got you here in the end it is yeah can we look at your shelves because you've spoken about the sort of ideas and the thoughts yes. little pieces we can see and I'm imagining a lot of these are also thoughts right these are all thoughts in fact or, or some of these are just works that all already exist in my head they just need to come out mm-hmm. into the real world now uh, i'm a real hoarder by the way like every little thing that i find i cannot get myself to throw them away in jerusalem um i was on a walk by myself and i spotted something on hanging over a tree like a little tree branch so, you know, upon a closer inspection, I saw it was a little dead bird. So it was a baby crow, maybe. Or and it was a real dead bird that had oh, wow. that had really struggled to... Well, it obviously didn't manage to set itself free. And it died in that position of just sheer pain and agony. I mean, this was just um, very soon after all the conflict in, uh, in Palestine, in Jerusalem... And for me, this bird kind of really summed it up, like why I was there. And so I, I broke it off, I broke off the branch and I brought it back with me. And it sat in my studio for about three years until I had to get it um, cast in bronze. So this is now a bronze cast of the dead bird that we were looking at. And now I've managed to preserve it yeah. in that moment. I mean, this is a very meaningful piece for yeah. me. It's, it hasn't been seen yet. I haven't shown it anywhere, and I wouldn't let it go out of the studio anytime soon. How did the bird then change your work afterwards? It just made me more aware of the of the metaphors, the fact that when we talk about places or objects or animals, they don't have to talk about these things, but they can stand in mm. for people. So that's something really, really important for me. Similarly, when we talk about my mindscapes, everything that I showed at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, though formally, physically, we were looking at fragments of landscapes, but they were physically landscape, but conceptually, there were more portraits. You know, there were snapshots of these, of these people that I'm talking about. And, and that's really important. You know, that's, it's really important that I now know that emotionally these are people and physically they are and that only happened because I found this dead bird and and where I found it in Jerusalem everything connected and it made sense so this piece here for example Guardian it's it's a white block and on on top it's a white block and it's it's probably a a self-portrait as me as a bird very sketchy I made it out of clay and straw very very quickly you know its head is bigger than its body 
because it's it's exploding with ideas. It's got the spectacles on, on, but it it doesn't have the eyes. So these are the things that really matter to me. These are little sketches. I would never let these go out of the studio. These stay here with me. Oh my God, you're going to love this. Look. Oh my gosh, is that a bird's skull? It's a bird's skull. It's exquisite. Isn't it just... I mean, but look at at its skull. It's transparent. It's got a very, very long beak. And then this tiny sort of marble-sized transparent skull. This one I found. Again, anything that speaks to me, any object, any anything. There's a whole other library that's not here. Mm-hmm. Or little things that, 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 that kind of just stay with me. Don't you do soldering on thick paper? I do. Scorching. Scorching, yeah. So I still draw a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I said drawing, it's not a very conventional pencil graphite on paper. Um, I always try and come up with alternative medium for drawing. Um, so, for example, recently I did a whole series of works called um, Scorched Lines, where I was using a, a soldering iron uh, to then scorch into the paper and burn the paper to, to make these images. Now, what was really interesting about that was the fact that it it all had to be done at a certain speed. I couldn't stop and hold the soldering iron on a paper or it would catch fire yeah, and it yeah. would burn. And again, it kind of really ties in with the, the, how the brain processes memory. And you know, you've got to keep, you've got to keep sort of feeding into that to keep a, a certain memory alive, or it'll just kind of fall off. You know, like um, nostalgia, right? It's a, such a seductive. A horrible place to be in because you know, like if you get if you go down that road, it's yeah. just. So your next exhibition? My next exhibition, very exciting, is happening um, in New Delhi with Nature Mort um, Gallery, um, curated by Peter Nagy, um, and it opens on the... So that's where I'll be showing my um, tapestries. The Tanabana series, yes, only those. And you're getting the exclusive viewing here today. (laughs) They're stunning, they're absolutely stunning. Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, and produced by Jeff Bird. Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower and more thoughtful way of life. To hear more episodes from this and former series, head to Toast magazine, which can be found at www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. <laughs>